Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining us today, he is the man who played Oak in the ABC original series Blue Skies, <laughs> Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing fine until you mentioned Oak. Oh, boy, that brings back a memory. I remember I opened that show by standing in a bucket of ice. Uh, the problem was the audience didn't know I was standing in ice, so they didn't get the joke. Uh, Oak was a big, rough and tumble dumb guy who they kept testing camping equipment on. So the joke was every week I would be in a torturous situation. The ice thing did not work as a joke, though, David. Did not. I'm sorry to hear that, sir. Yes, uh, me but, too. You know, you know, speaking of jokes, uh, I was looking over your filmography the other day. and oh, please. Uh, yeah, no, I know. It was definitely very painful. And it got me to thinking, Stephen, what are some of your favorite jokes? I mean, certainly over the years, you've heard a lot of jokes. You've told a lot of jokes. What are some of your favorite ones? Oh, okay. Here is a new joke. Not necessarily my favorite, but uh, it makes me laugh. There's a very old Jewish man married to a very young, voluptuous young woman. And he cannot satisfy her at all in bed on their honeymoon. So they go to the rabbi for advice. And the rabbi for advice is, well, what you need to do is go out into the field and find a young, strong farmhand and have him stand over you when you try to make love and wave a towel. So they go out, get the young, strong farmhand. They go back to the bedroom, and once again, the old man cannot perform. She is miserable. The young guy is waving the towel. Doesn't work. So they go back to the rabbi, the three of them, and the rabbi says, well, you know, maybe we're doing this in the wrong order. Maybe the young man should make love with your wife, and you should stand over her and wave the towel. So they go back to the bedroom, and the farmhand makes love with the young wife. She has a wonderful time. The old guy is standing above them, waving a towel over his head, and he yells, That's how you wave a towel, you stupid schmuck! I don't get it. Well, well, he thinks that waving the towel is why she... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just messing with you, Stephen. That is a yeah, very but... funny joke. That's, uh, wait, wait. Ver- that's very good. It, 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 I tell you, it's a new... Uh, Okay, here's, here's a different one. This is a very old, stupid joke that I just heard for the fifth time. And David, I don't know, but my opinion is that an old joke is a lot like an old relationship. You don't want to think about it again, but you can't help but finding it comforting. So here, here's the joke. On Wally's 40th birthday, he blows out his candles and makes a wish, and he wants to know his future. Suddenly, the room brightens with an ethereal light. The angels sing. The clouds open above him, and he hears the voice of God saying, Wally, do not fear. You will have a long and prosperous life. Well, of course, this was the greatest gift Wally could have got. Now that he knows how lucky he's going to be, he is inspired. So he quits smoking and drinking. He eats fewer fats. He starts working out. He loses 30 pounds. He gets a new haircut. He works on his tan. Now that he knows he's going to have plenty of time to pursue his real dreams, he quits his job and becomes an artist. He's on his way to the art store to buy an easel. Wally is hit by a bus and killed. He goes to heaven and he is furious. He walks up to God and says, what happened? You just told me I was going to have a long and prosperous life. 
God takes a long second look and says, Oh, sorry, Wally, I didn't recognize you. As uh, my friend at the barn was telling me this joke, I smiled and pretended not to know how it was going to end. I was thinking that the etiquette of hearing a familiar joke is the same as having a successful marriage. It requires patience and a well-practiced smile. And then I was hit with another notion that was less comforting. In a blinding flash, I realized the joke was right. My whole life, I had been Wally. How do we recognize ourselves? I lived through the era of shoulder pads and spandex, all gone now except for an occasional Bette Midler concert. I survived the era of recreational drugs and recreational sex, only to find a new landscape littered with televised rehab and re-virginization surgery. I lived through the eras of high standards and eras of low expectations. My whole life has been a competition between total change and staying absolutely the same. And now I'm standing in the horse barn, listening to the sad tale of Wally and wondering, what is the engine that has driven me all of my life? The Talmud has a theory. It states that a man always seeks what he has lost. And for you Talmud lovers, that's in Nida 31b. That could be a good starting place. That explains the return to the last channel button on the remote control. It explains skinny jeans, New Year's resolutions. It also explains why it's so difficult ending major relationships in your life. When you break up with someone you have loved for so long a time, you're not only hit by a tidal wave of change. you got new place to live, new furniture, new friends. But you're also hit with the undeniable force of trying to regain what you have lost. Where is she? What is she doing? I remember when we used to do this, that. It's a feeling that borders on obsession, so much so that it's easy to mistake the desire to regain what is lost with love itself. Once our relationship ended, I never tried to find Beth. I never looked her up on the internet, but there was nothing clean about the break. She was on my mind for years. Years. I never saw Beth when I was in Jackson shooting Mississippi Burning. I never saw any of her family or friends that I knew from my past life. I was disappointed and relieved. When I got back to Los Angeles, Anne was doing a reading of what was heralded as the most popular play in Iceland. It was a three-hour drama about incest, insanity, and alcoholism. It was called Day of Hope. The only hope I had that day was that this play was not autobiographical. At the reception afterwards, I was having cocktails with the writer of the play, Birger Sigerson. Bigger said that because the play was such a huge success in Iceland, they had been invited to perform at the Scandinavian Theater Festival in Helsinki in May. I think I must have been inspired by my vodka and orange juice. I gave him a thumbs up and told him Anne and I would be there opening night to root him on. Birger smiled and said, Stephen, have you seen a map of the world lately? Helsinki is in Finland, 
that's a long trip. I shrugged it off and told Birger, Anne and I had just visited our director friend Stein Vinga in Norway. And as far as we were concerned, Scandinavia was just a state of mind. Birger toasted me and said, Very well. See you in May. On the way home, Anne asked me if I enjoyed the play. I told her enjoy wasn't the right word. The experience was more like hammering a finishing nail through my hand, which, if not enjoyable, was still compelling. The play got my attention. As I turned onto the freeway home, I said, You know, Annie, we really should go to Finland for opening night. You know, it would really freak those guys out. Anne looked at me as if I'd lost my mind. Are you serious? Absolutely, I said. Anne looked at the road and then said abruptly, Let's do it. I'll plan the trip. Oh, dear, what have I done? Then it dawned on me. I went to Norway alone. Anne joined me later. The last international trip I had taken with a female was with Beth 13 years earlier. My brain provided a Reader's Digest condensed version of that excursion. We went to London and Paris with two of the heaviest suitcases ever packed. We had no hotel reservations, no travel arrangements, no theater tickets. And yet despite that, we saw every play in London. We danced at the Moulin Rouge with a nosebleeder and his wife from Vermont. We ended up in a baggage car of a speeding train from Paris to Calais. For this final leg of the trip, I was wearing two wet, wool Pierre Cardin suits covered with table scraps. Even if you remove judgmental words like good or bad, I didn't have a lot of positive associations with international travel. And Anne and I didn't know each other that well. We had only lived together for six months, and most of that time I was gone. Anne started studying travel books. She was bursting with excitement when she sprung her plan on me. What if we don't just travel to Finland, she said. What if we go to England first, then go to Finland for the festival, then back to England and to Scotland? You went to England with Beth, right? I always wanted to go. It felt like a science fiction movie. Going back to England, but in another life. I was already getting giant suitcase flashback. I didn't know what to say. Now my fundamentally unsound idea of traveling to Finland to see Day of Hope in Icelandic took on another quality. I wanted to go, partly to have an adventure with Anne, partly to keep my word for showing up opening night in Helsinki, and partly, I must admit, to retrace some of my steps to try to seek what I had lost. Spoiler alert! If you wondered whether this trip to the continent would stir up old memories of Beth, forget it. It was unlike my first trip in every way. It was unlike any trip I had ever taken. Anne was excited when she showed me her stack of books and maps she had been using as reference materials spread in front of her. She stood behind the pile like General Douglas MacArthur and said with a certain degree of gravity, this trip will be called Prehistoric Britain. Oh no, she named her trip. I had never been on a trip that had a name before other than going to Granny's. I started getting a nervous feeling in my stomach that I always got in sixth grade when we would have a pop test in history class. I knew Anne was a good student in school. She had a degree in pre-Shakespearean English literature. 
She taught herself Norse, Old English, and was the only person I knew who treasured her Anglo-Saxon dictionary. In the short time we had been a couple, I was unaware how completely organized she was, how organized she would be, and what requirements that would place on me. I will say in my defense, I am not a slob. But my need for organization usually stopped at the turkey platter. I believe in keeping the white meat and dark meat separated. It was important for me to keep my socks in pairs, but only by color, not by manufacture. Side note, this was a system I had used for years. Since most of my socks were white, if I got a hole in one, I could just throw it away and pair the surviving sock with another white sock, regardless of whether the thickness or sock material matched. I mean, when you're wearing white socks, who cares? As Anne began to speak about the upcoming journey, I became aware of another attribute of hers I had never noticed. She was frugal. Very frugal. When we were dating, she told me she was a combination of Scotch, Irish, and stingy French. At the time, I wasn't wearing any pants, so I didn't recognize this as a warning. In my previous life, I had become accustomed to a backup plan relied upon by most of the disorganized people of the world. If there's a problem, throw money at it. See if it goes away. Usually it does. Anne's organization and frugality was going to make that difficult. She didn't even believe in throwing pennies in a fountain. She had planned this trip down to the inch down to the minute, down to the snack breaks. Anne had reservations for everything. She had the documentation of communications with car companies and quaint B&Bs, even communications with places that weren't B&Bs that might have had one of the Bs at a discount price. We had reservations to sleep one night at a dog kennel. She had maps and magazine articles laminated and put in three ring binders. Anne said we should take almost no luggage three pieces, one small suitcase each for clothes, and one large suitcase for books and maps. I was already guessing who was going to carry the bookmobile. She strongly suggested we take as few clothes as possible, preferably lightweight, water-resistant pants, shirts, and underwear we could wash and dry overnight. She thought camping clothes would work. That way we could wash them in a river along the way if need be. Anne pulled a book out of the pile and said, I was thinking of using this book as our theme. Anne handed me a thick paperback called Staying Off the Beaten Track. I smiled and said, great. But secretly, I was not feeling so great. The trip not only had a name, now it had a theme. I wasn't expecting this. Sidebar. I have to admit I have a great mistrust of going off the beaten track. I am completely a beaten track guy. I think the beaten track gets far less respect than it deserves. They call it the beaten track for a reason. It's earned it. It has paved roads leading to it in beds where they change the sheets occasionally and running water and indoor toilets. When you take the beaten path, they don't ask you to help with the farm work before dinner. I was not sure what Anne had planned for me, but occasionally, you have to give up control to the ones you love, even if it means spending a night in a kennel. Our plan was to spend the first three days in London before we picked up our rental car and headed out for prehistoric Britain. Anne said we could see plays those first three days when we were there, and we would have, if we hadn't been in a coma. 
We had a near-terminal case of jet lag when we arrived in London. We fell into our hotel bed in a state of exhaustion on the other side of REM sleep. It was a land of unconsciousness usually reserved for patients on anesthesia or astronauts in science fiction movies who have to travel to another galaxy. What made everything even more surreal is that we fell asleep with the TV on. The program never changed because it was a live broadcast of a three-day cricket match, England versus Cameroon. It became our soundtrack for the 72 hours we were in London. It was always there whenever we would stagger to the bathroom, whenever we rolled over to find the part of the pillow that didn't have drool on it. The maids must have thought we were the biggest cricket fans in the world. My memory of those three days was total blackness, interrupted occasionally by the star bowler from Cameroon winding up and throwing the ball at a man dressed like a Halloween pumpkin, swinging what looked like a wooden beaver tail. And then sleep would overtake me again. The third day in London, we started to wake up. Anne asked if we wanted to try to see a play. I said I'd rather not. At this point, I wanted to see who won the cricket match. Anne made the arrangements for our rental car. It was something called a golf. This is a type of car so small it's considered mid-sized in Europe. It had a stick shift. Anne said, why pay the extra $150 for automatic? The answer would have been, so I could drive it too. But when we had the car discussion, once again, I wasn't wearing any pants. So I didn't focus on the details. Everything about the car was backwards. I developed a new respect for Anne. She could not only drive on the wrong side of the road, but she could shift and operate the radio with the wrong hand. The rental car man took us outside of London proper for the car exchange. He said it was too dangerous to let Americans drive in the city. He was a sweet, generous fellow. He helped load up our bags and books. He showed me how to adjust my seat so I could fit into the car. I was basically sitting in the trunk, but my feet still had feeling. He gave Anne more maps and a pamphlet of traffic laws. We turned on the radio and headed down the highway far, far away from the beaten path. When you travel off the beaten path, it's hard to get excited about what you're going to see because you've never heard of it. Our first stop was something called the Uthington Horse in Oxfordshire. I looked it up in Anne's research. For those not in the know, this is not a horse at all, but a gigantic piece of prehistoric art. From a distance, it looks like a big sand trap on a golf course. Archaeologists claim it's over 3,000 years old which predates the oldest golf course in England by about 2,600 years, making it a very special sand trap indeed. I admired Anne's poise behind the wheel. She didn't feel the overwhelming desire to plow into oncoming traffic. Out of the window, I caught the sight of the Uffington horse, and I must say, it was impressive. She kept driving. I was disappointed. I said I thought we were going to go see the horse. She smiled and said, We are but we're going to do it the right way. Anne drove to the next village. 
she went into a tiny market and bought a bottle of fresh cow's milk, a loaf of bread, and some homemade cheddar cheese. We jumped back in the car and headed on the unpaved farm roads over the mountain to where the horse was carved. We saw it below us. Anne stopped the car. We jumped out and ran through a field of tall, wet grass. The damp didn't bother us at all. We were wearing our water-resistant camping clothes. Anne threw out a blanket, and we lay down in front of the horse. We opened our bottle of milk and cheese and had an unexpected feast for the lactose-tolerant. A light rain started to fall, but we kept eating chunks of bread and gulping milk. We had a few milk mustache kisses on the mountainside. I started laughing. Anne asked what was wrong. I said nothing. I was just hit by the unexpected joys of going off the beaten path. She laughed too and said, see, this is fun. Admit it. I did. It was fun. It was fun until we got to our first off-the-beaten-path hotel room. We were in the town of Salisbury at a place called the Old Mill, which was, in fact, an old mill. Now, I've noticed that people in England don't work too hard at coming up with names of places. They just call something what it is. The Sheep's Bridge, the Red Inn, the Corner Pub. In our case, the Old Mill was one of the oldest working mills in England. The old mill inspired me to develop a system of off-the-beaten-track, or OBT, points. Whereas the Uffington horse scored high in OBT points, the old mill house had negative OBT points. They had converted some of the space in the wheelhouse into what they called guest rooms. These rooms were connected to the outside world by way of a random collection of boards and nails called a stairway. This stairway was not thought through on any level of design, carpentry, or future litigation. Only a cat could get up and down easily. The ceiling was very, very low, so you couldn't stand up straight. The steps slanted from left to right, so you had to lean at a 15-degree angle and grab onto the rafters to keep from falling into the abyss. I decided the safest thing to do was to walk sideways but face front, with one hand high and one hand low for stability. Add jazz hands and a shiny suit, and I could have been in a chorus line. We came down to dine in the Millhouse restaurant. They asked if I wanted wine or cocktails. I said no. I knew I would need all of my wits to climb back up to the room again. The special that night was Salisbury steak. I was always a little suspicious of Salisbury steak, what they served in elementary school when they wanted to get rid of old food. I asked our landlady if it was good. She said we were in Salisbury, so it was the best Salisbury steak in the world. I recognized the politics in her answer. Anne and I ordered it anyway. Side note, it is always a sign of a new relationship when each partner orders the same thing. In long relationships, couples understand that ordering is just a sophisticated form of foraging. They branch out and order options. When Anne and I order now, it's not an exercise in preference, but a strategy meeting. You want the soup? Good. You order the soup, I'll eat half of it. I'll get the okra, you can eat that, and I'll eat the top half of your dessert. Our landlady served us strange meat that was a little chewy and some potatoes. What made the dish great was the entire thing was covered in the most delicious gravy. 
Anne took one taste and looked at me with a sort of, I know something you don't know, look. I am very aware of the meaning of that look now, but back then I thought she just had something wrong with her contacts. I said, hmm, boy, this gravy is unusual, very tasty, don't you think? You know why, Anne said. I shrugged. She continued, I think they make it with blood. Insert shot of a spit take. I said, what? Anne said in old English recipes, they often use blood for flavoring. More negative OBT points. Our landlady came back and asked how we were enjoying our Salisbury steak. Anne said it was very nice and added casually, the gravy has a special taste. How do you make it? The landlady batted her eyes and smiled sweetly. Dearie, we use an old recipe. Anne said, do you use blood? The landlady gestured delicately with her fingers and said, just a wee bit. Before the reality of having eaten a big plate of blood set in, I walked outside of the mill where I was surprised by another magical moment courtesy of being off the beaten track. And I could pass this magic on to you right now. I can show you exactly what I saw at the foot of the crooked stairs outside of the old mill house that late afternoon, early evening in 1988. I can do that because someone else stood right where I was standing and saw what I saw and found it breathtaking too, almost 200 years earlier. In 1825, John Constable painted a remarkable picture called Salisbury Cathedral. That painting is the exact image of what I saw. Constable had to have stood right where I stood that evening to paint that picture. There was a vast field of cow parsley, a little stream and a little bridge and a long, narrow pathway through the wildflowers that led to the old mill to the cathedral. Anne and I walked that path in the early dusk. The doors to the cathedral were wide open. There was no guard, no ticket taker. I started to walk in. Anne stopped me. She was afraid we would get arrested. Emotional incompatibility began to rear its head. I was a millisecond away from saying Beth wouldn't have been afraid. Fortunately, the Lord interceded. Singing started to pour out of the cathedral. We had arrived in time for choir practice. That did it. Anne ran inside, pulling me along. We sat alone in that huge, dark, beautiful cathedral with the high painted gables and the stained glass and heard a concert, an accidental command performance of hymns in beautiful harmony. Miraculous. The next day we wedged me back into the car and headed for the heart of the Wiltshire County. Wiltshire is famous for attractions even older than the Old Mill, Old Sarum, Avebury Circle, and the all-time superstar of ruins, Stonehenge. We made it to Old Sarum. It was advertised as the remains of a Neolithic fortified city dating back to 3000 B.C., or B.C.E. for my Jewish friends. We got out of the car and went to take a look into the dim past. Unfortunately, it was too dim. All I could see was a large vacant lot. My imagination had been trained on the written word. I was unused to seeing the phantoms of archaeology. 
There was a long ditch and a mound that wound its way through the cow pasture. I sat on the ground with Anne and tried to imagine what life must have been like in the Iron Age. I pulled out one of two reefers I had brought with me from America to help in the process. Anne stared at me. What are you doing? Oh, I, I just thought it would be a perfect place, you know, to get high. Get high? Uh, yeah. You're going to smoke that? Well, I, w- I was thinking about it. Well, what if you got arrested? I looked around. Not even a field mouse. Annie, uh, I think we're alone. I don't like it. It makes me nervous. Another personality conflict. Anne appeared to respect sobriety, even insist upon it, even in a cow pasture. I was having doubts about the future of this relationship. I lit up. I took a deep inhale. A couple of minutes later, I found it a little easier to imagine what life was like 3,000 years ago. Anne stared at me. She wasn't angry so much as disappointed. It was enough motivation for me to throw away the vestiges of my past. Both of them. I looked away from Sarum to the countryside below. It was vast and beautiful. Anne said, Didn't you say you read Piers the Plowman? Yeah, I said, for some weird reason. I was going through a medieval phase. I read a lot of incomprehensible things. I thought they might have something interesting in them. Did they? I thought back. Yes, as a matter of fact. I read an account of someone who lived through the Black Death. They said it was like a new golden age for the people that survived. There was food and treasure everywhere, just lying on the ground. So bad times are just a matter of perspective, Anne said. Something like that. Well, Anne said, if I remember my history... Langlin lived by the Uffington horse. He wandered here, somewhere through these valleys to Malvern, where he wrote Piers the Plowman. Really? I looked back out at the countryside. Now it had a new meaning. It became the trees and streams of someone else's past. Someone else's dangerous animals club. I could see it. Life as it was hundreds of years ago. I imagine Langland walking through these forests, writing about the life he knew. Anne looked out over the valley with me and asked, What do you remember from Langland? Well, in Piers the Plowman, he said, We shouldn't judge others too harshly. If we had our choice, we would all be Adam and Eve living in the garden. Anne reached out and took my hand. We sat and looked over the timeless valley. After an eternity, we rose and headed back to the rental car and wound our way back to the A-303. Avebury Circle dates back to 2600 B.C. For perspective, this is around 1,000 years before Moses left Egypt, which archaeologists have placed at around 1450 B.C.E. Avebury is a larger and less famous Stonehenge. Basically, it's the same thing. Large stones set vertically in a massive circular pattern. No one knows why the builders went to all of the trouble of dragging these stones two miles from the probable quarry site to Avebury. Original scientists were sure that both Avebury and Stonehenge had to be some kind of astronomical calendar. What has baffled everyone 
is that the more they study Avebury and Stonehenge, the more they have found them interconnected, both above and below the ground. They have found connection sites in Europe. Maybe these sites drew their power not from what they were, but because they were connected. A prehistoric version of Facebook. Anne and I walked among the stones. They were impressive. I couldn't figure out why. They weren't that big. They weren't what I would call beautiful. They were just big rocks. And then I had a realization that I think is true now some 25 years later. I was impressed by them simply because they were there. They were authentic. It reminded me of some acting advice my dear old friend Bob had told me in St. Louis when we were doing Crimes of the Heart. Bob said the people in the audience don't need to see anything clever. They just want to see something true. Maybe that's the allure of anything from the past. Their presence makes time seem real. We got in the car and headed for Stonehenge. I was excited. It was a place I had heard of before. It's refreshing to encounter a spot on earth unwilling to relinquish her mystery. The more Stonehenge is studied, the more it changes. It gets older. It was thought to be 5,000 years old. Now new photographic techniques have revealed that the site may be at least 7,000 years old. Stonehenge may have only served as an astral calendar tangentially. Now scientists think it was a place of healing. Why? Studies of the stones and the bones recovered there found an interesting correlation. A significant number of the human remains showed signs of serious illness or injury. The slabs at Stonehenge are made of bluestone. It's a rare rock known to modern geologists as spotted dolomite. This dolomite was carved into amulets for healing that were found all across England at other prehistoric sites. So, was Stonehenge the last stop at the end of hope? It's hard to come to any real conclusion. The mystery is too deep. We have to be content with the scientific conclusion that we don't have any idea. We were ready for our own exploration of Stonehenge, only we couldn't find it. We went up and down the freeway. There were signs everywhere, so we knew we were close. The map said we were standing right next to it. Out of frustration, we pulled off the road. We got out of the car and stared into the combination of mist and fog that covered the countryside. The mist in England is like the snow in Alaska. It seems to be alive. We could see the water vapor swirling in front of our eyes. My glasses needed windshield wipers. Then, as if on cue, the sun started to come out from behind a cloud, and we could see the shape forming in the mist about a hundred yards away. The sound of the freeway seemed to vanish behind us. The sun continued to brighten, and there it was. A chilling moment. Stonehenge. Just like on the record albums. My first thought was I was taken aback about how small it looked in person, like meeting Bob Dylan backstage at a concert. As the sun hit it full on, we became aware that Stonehenge had a new addition. It was enclosed by a nasty green chain-link fence. We walked up. There was a flyer wired to the fence. 
The gist of the flyer was that people have been treating Stonehenge like the Beatles at Shea Stadium, rushing the stage, trying to tear off a piece of Paul's jacket. In the past few years, the government decided too many people had been ripping off bits of Stonehenge to take home, so the National Trust had to build a fence around it. It was an odd juxtaposition of architectural elements. Two circles, one built around the other. It made me wonder if Stonehenge was originally built as a barricade protecting something else that was there before it. And then I wondered if, in time, the green fence would become famous too. Of the various reasons Stonehenge could have been built, one was clearly magic. We aren't too interested in magic anymore. It's been replaced by CGI. It's no one's fault. Magic requires a certain amount of silence. Maybe that's why in churches they always ask for a moment of silent prayer, hoping to move the congregation by the simple absence of noise. One of the things we've been good at creating over the past thousand years are various forms of noise, from cars and factories to airplanes and electric guitars. All of that has been tougher on Stonehenge than tourists chipping off souvenirs. Our next stop was the capital of off-the-beaten-track, Glastonbury. Today, Glastonbury is a scene of many televised rock concerts, but back when Anne and I visited... It was England's answer to Sedona, Arizona. It was freak central. Locals claimed it was a powerful spiritual vortex. And as one who's had a close working relationship with the vortex, I was afraid. Legend had it back in the time of the Celts. This was the home of the Lord of the Underworld and the King of the Fairies, who was supposedly the same guy. This history made Glastonbury a natural draw for young men and women who were addicted to cannabis. If you miss the 60s, you could still find them here. You can get your palm read, get your planets read, get your past lives uncovered while you're buying a tie-dyed t-shirt and purchasing a purified crystal. It was like going into a simpler time when people said far out and enjoyed peeing in bushes. Judging from the recent MTV specials, they still enjoy doing that at Glastonbury, but back then, they did it with their faces painted wearing tinfoil crowns. Glastonbury was a scene of several memorable OBT moments. I found a skeleton key in the grass near the Tor, which is a tall, ancient tower on a hill that was rumored to be the site of King Arthur's Avalon. I was brought to a man from the National Trust to hand the key over for historical study or possibly to use to break into one of the rooms at the inn across the street. Glastonbury was the first time Anne and I tasted clotted cream. My atheist friends always ask for proof that there's a God. I always point to clotted cream. If that doesn't win the argument, they're too far gone for help. Most significantly, Glastonbury was the scene of the first gigantic fight Anne and I had on this trip. I say first because we had many. Any one of them would have been enough to end an ordinary relationship or to make us stars on a reality television show. I have no idea what the Glastonbury fight was about, or any of them, actually. I mentioned it to Anne this morning, and she shook her head and ran up and held me. After almost 25 years, that fight still left a mark, and neither of us have any idea what it was about. But it was loud. It was long. It was occasionally public. 
It was about something so insignificant we can't remember it or something so significant we have repressed memory syndrome. Whenever a couple has a fight in which they can't remember how it started or how it ended, I've come to the conclusion that it was probably some piece of fiction written out of fear or mistrust and thrown at your partner to read. It's not the facts that hurt so much, but the harsh intentions of the author. I don't even remember how we made up. Maybe it was the clotted cream. But whenever you have a bad fight on a vacation, like it or not, your trip takes on a new theme. We traveled with uncertainty to the city of Bath, famous for its ruins. We were both quiet in the car. It was partially because of the fight and partially because we were listening to the CD of the Broadway production of Les Mis, and we were both crying. Every time Fontaine sang, I spent a summer by his side, Anne would burst into tears. Every time I heard, bring him home, I burst into tears. Combine that with trying to remember to drive on the left, it was a recipe for vehicular homicide. It's a wonder we made it to Bath at all. We drove straight to the old cathedral where carved angels were climbing up the side of the building as if they were on Jacob's ladder going to heaven. It was pretty remarkable. I was beginning to see another theme in prehistoric Britain, from Stonehenge to Glastonbury to Bath. First, you pray to the elements for mercy. Then you learn to build shelters to get out of the elements. Then you learn to make the shelters beautiful. Even though we had lived together for half of a year, Anne and I were still at the stage where we were praying for mercy. We walked over to the Roman baths. They still had water in the very dark green water, probably more vegetable than liquid at this point. And then in a move that I can only reflect as the epitome of going off the beaten track, Anne and I just started walking randomly through the town. And very surprisingly... Even though I had never been to Bath before in my life, I ended up somewhere I knew. I ended up in a place I had been before. We ended up on the circular street where they shot Who Will Buy in the movie Oliver. I couldn't believe it. I had wandered unexpectedly onto a real street that was a set of one of my favorite musicals. I expected Bill Sykes and his dog Bullseye to come around the corner at any moment. I started to sing a few bars and walked down the street like a flower vendor when suddenly I was hit with a wave of exhaustion. I told Anne I had to sit down. We did, right there, in an empty field of grass on the end of my street from Oliver. The smell of the grass was rich and the sun was warm off of my camping shirt and water-resistant pants. I realized I was rapidly losing consciousness and I told Annie I had to lie down. She never said a thing but smiled and pulled my head onto her lap. And I slept. And I dreamt. I lay there on Anne's lap for over an hour. It seems ridiculous now to say that that nap I had in Bath was one of the most memorable moments of my life. It's hard to explain to friends when they ask, well, what did you do in England? And you answer, well, I passed out in a vacant lot. It was great. It's certainly not what you would find in any of the guidebooks, even in the now well-used staying off the beaten track. I recently mentioned my nap that day to Anne, 
and her eyes filled with tears, and she just said, That was nice. It seems odd to think fondly about having gone around the world to lose consciousness, but it's all in how you look at things. Bad times are a matter of perspective. For Anne, maybe it was as simple as doing something nice for someone you loved. For me, it became a reference point of what pianist Alfred Brindell meant when he said that to understand any music, don't just look at the notes. Look at the rests. It could have been all of the above, or none of the above. Or maybe it was just a prayer for mercy that was answered. I remember looking at the world globe in sixth grade. All those countries at the top seemed so close together. For the record, they're not. Helsinki is a long way away from London. It's a three-hour flight without quality snacks. It's an entire country that's off the beaten path. Finland is not a place you go to by accident. Everyone is there intentionally. They either bought a ticket there or they couldn't afford a ticket out. In 2010, I was amused and thrilled to see Newsweek magazine named Finland the best country in the world. I was thrilled for Finland to get all the good press, and I was also amused because obviously the writer had never been there. I'm guessing Newsweek's research for their article was based solely on a calendar they ordered from the Helsinki Chamber of Commerce. Who can resist a reindeer? To understand Finland, you have to understand how far north it is. It's way up there. The Arctic Circle runs through it. Whenever you have a country that the Arctic Circle runs through, you're going to have a lot of snow. That's a given. The one thing the writer from Newsweek didn't properly appreciate is that you will also have nearly eternal night. Finland has three seasons, summer, mosquito season, and night. Anne and I traveled to Helsinki in the summer after a week of fighting in England. There's a passage in the Torah that says it's wrong to yoke a bull and an ass together. They will never be in step, and the halter will hurt them both. For fear of starting another fight, I will not say who is the bull and who is the ass in this poorly chosen metaphor. But we both had ample opportunities to hurt one another. We didn't know it at the time, but traveling together is one of the most stressful things a couple can do. It's especially true if it's not been determined you are going to remain a couple. Anne and I stepped off the plane into a world of remarkable sunlight. Precious, rare sunlight. The quality of this sunlight was unlike anything I had seen. It was translucent, shimmering, coming through the leaves of the trees lining the esplanade, which is the main walkway downtown. The light was so thick and golden 
You felt like you could hold it in your hand. The air was cool and clean. It chilled while the sun seemed to burn you. It's a delicious combination. We checked into the Helsinki Hotel. Another fact not mentioned in the Newsweek article is that you can't find a king-size bed in Finland. Can't be done. It's all single beds, long single beds, very long. You could almost sleep end to end, but no doubles. I asked the manager or concierge or whomever they have in the lobby that spoke English if we could move to a room with a double bed. He said there were no double beds. Finland never had double beds. People who want them import them. Why you need a double bed? Um, sex, I said. He thought about it and shook his head. No, single bed should do. Pause for update. I have recently talked to several Finnish rock and rollers on a tour in Los Angeles, and they told me that Finland has recently joined the League of Nations and accepted king-size beds. So view my observations as nothing more than a quaint historical footnote. I took a peek at our hotel bathroom. I was in awe. The tub was huge. It was bigger than some of the apartments I'd seen in New York. And theorized that the harsh weather conditions meant fewer people per square foot, which translated into larger indoor living spaces. We could thank the eternal night for the big tub. The baths were also set up to be steam rooms, so you could bathe, get some steam, and do your laundry in the tub at the same time. The downside of summer in Finland is the workmen. Construction people have a hard time doing anything in the winter, so they have to make hay while the sun is shining, which in the summer is always. Outside of the hotel, we had jackhammers and cement trucks going 24-7. On the fun side, you also had people water skiing at 2 in the morning. To escape the drilling, I went down to check out the bar in the hotel. I could say without qualification, Finland served the biggest beers I had ever seen. I needed two hands to raise the glass. I felt like Jack and the Beanstalk sitting at the giant's table. To go along with those big beers, Finland had the biggest urinals I've ever seen. Wonderful. Amazing. No matter how shaky you are, you can't miss. American urinals, by comparison, are insulting. They either look like a cattle trough or an afterthought. We stick a row of little white porcelain things on a wall with leaky flushers. Is it any surprise that American men always seem to pee on the floor? Awful. No way that could happen in Finland. Finnish urinals are huge, circular vessels that seem to go straight to the center of the earth. You could call into them and hear an echo. I know. I tried. I assumed I could also thank the eternal night for the big toilets. It was the end of May, 1988. I hadn't read any newspapers in a while, so I was unaware that Helsinki was the most important city in the world this particular week. Something called the Moscow Summit was about to happen. I got the first whiff of something when I noticed I was standing next to Sam Donaldson on the Esplanade. Then I thought I saw Mike Wallace, then Morley Safer. I had no idea Finland was so interesting. Anne and I went to a restaurant on the Esplanade. We were told by a man in sunglasses that we couldn't go in. Ronald Reagan was dining there. I know it's statistically remote to be kicked out of a restaurant by the President of the United States, but Anne and I topped that. Two years later, we were in Washington, D.C. for a premiere of a movie I was in. 
We went to dine at Old Ebbets Grill, a famous eatery. We were told by men wearing sunglasses that we would have to leave because Ronald Reagan was coming to dine there. Thrown out of a restaurant twice, across the globe, across the span of time by the most powerful man in the world, it almost qualifies as bullying. I asked the English-speaking man in the lobby what restaurants he could recommend. He asked, do you like reindeer? I said, you, you mean to eat? Yes. What else would you do with them? Uh, I don't know, I said. Uh, carry presents? We eat them here. Well, do you recommend reindeer? The English speaker thought for a second. It is something you should eat while you're here. There are not many places in the world where you can eat a reindeer. It didn't seem like a ringing endorsement, but I got the address of a good restaurant near the hotel not serving Ronald Reagan. Anne and I headed out that night wearing the best clothes we had, which in my case happened to be unstained waterproof cargo pants. We arrived at the restaurant. It was opulent inside. Velvet curtains, silver, crystal, beautiful china. There was a group of very drunk diners wearing fancy clothing. At the head of the table was an older man with a shaved head and an extreme mustache. He was pouring shots of vodka for his party. They raised their glasses. He uttered a toast in a language that I assumed was Finnish and that it sounded like someone choking on sardines. We sat down. Anne was upset. She said we were underdressed. I said, well, as soon as I cover up with this nice napkin, no one would know. We looked at the menus. Incomprehensible. I asked if they had reindeer. The waiter was a very pleasant young man who pointed to the drunk, bald man and said, he is eating the reindeer. I looked back. The bald man was chewing on a piece of meat the size of his head. His mouth was open, not out of rudeness, but simply because he had not evolved to the point where he could unhinge his jaws like a boa constrictor. I said, I'll have that. Anne had a native Finnish dish in a white sauce. The reindeer turned out to be a yummier version of armadillo. While we were eating, the bald man, on a second bottle of vodka, began singing loudly. I stifled a laugh. Anne put her silverware down and said, I can't stand this. I said, baby, the man is drunk. Anne said, not him. You. Me? What's wrong with me? You're eating so loudly. What, you could hear me chew? It's so rude. Well, what difference does it make? Everyone's listening to the drunk man sing. You're eating so fast. I find it upsetting. It's like you're not really here. I don't know what you expect, Anne. I'm not James Bond, but I'm not the bald guy either. Anne tossed down her napkin. Can we leave? I'd like to leave. I was exasperated. Sure. Let me swallow. I'll get the check. We can go. We headed back to the hotel in silence. We got to the room. The silence erupted into the next big fight. As incomprehensible as Finnish was, I found this fight even more perplexing. I have no idea how long or how loud the fight got. I ended it by saying, hey, I have a good idea. We don't have to do this. We can go our separate ways. I don't need to be in a relationship so badly that I have to fight over everything. I hate fights. I don't find them interesting or romantic. If you're unhappy, we'll go home. We'll call it a day. 
Anne sat there in horrible silence. The midnight sun came pouring through the hotel window. There were clothes everywhere. She had washed our laundry in the bathtub earlier that day, and shirts and underwear were drying around the room on every available piece of furniture. It looked like a tornado had hit us, and we were sitting among the wreckage of our lives. I'm not sure how long we sat there. Anne looked outside the window at the hideous sunlight. She murmured, You never loved me anyway. You never loved me. Silence. Did you? I couldn't answer. And then I said, I have a good idea. What? She said. Let's sleep on it. Sleep on it? Yeah. Things will look better in the morning. Well, how will we know when it's morning? I looked out at the eternal sunshine. It's whenever we wake up. We rearranged the drying clothes. We pulled back the covers, and with the sound of jackhammers outside of our window, we lay down together on a single bed and held on tight. That was Prehistoric Britain, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Well, David, people uh, can write me at my email address, which is stephentobolowsky at gmail.com, and that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. For the holiday season, definitely think about... Uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party, the little movie that started the whole storytelling thing. And you can find that at stbpmovie.com. Find more episodes of The Tobolowsky Files at tobolowskyfiles.com. People have also been asking, where can you find the first couple dozen episodes of The Tobolowsky Files? You can actually get that in audiobook form as The Dangerous Animals Club. Uh, the first 25 stories of The Tobolowsky Files are roughly about the stories covered in the dangerous animals club find that audiobook at audible.com thank you guys for listening to the tobolowski files we'll see you guys later adios